You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. We're back in Washington, D.C. for the lame duck session. Starts this week and continues toward the end of the year when we'll swear in the new Congress in January. Let's talk about the news. And the news in the United States is optimistic with the revelation that not only is Pfizer going to be deploying a vaccine, but also Moderna Inc. has announced that in their phase three clinical trials, their vaccine is upwards of 95% effective. This is great news for the country. It's great news for the Trump administration. It was done in cooperation with Operation Warp Speed. But there is something just a little suspicious about the fact that we have these vaccine breakthroughs days and weeks after the election. And there's, I think, a dynamic that may explain it. No American president, no American politician in recent history has been tougher on big pharma than President Trump. And here's why. There's no major drug in this country that has not enjoyed the investment of U.S. taxpayers to get to market in research and development. I mean, quite literally, the FDA hasn't approved any major drug that you can buy on the market today where the U.S. taxpayer hasn't been involved through universities or the National Institute of Health in some form of collaboration. So Big Pharma gets the benefit of the U.S. taxpayer's generosity, and then they turn around and sell those drugs for one price, pennies on the dollar, in Canada, Europe, elsewhere. And then they charge, you know, four or five times, sometimes even more, of that international price here against our citizens. And then you hear how seniors and vulnerable Americans have to choose between their pharmaceuticals and food. That shouldn't happen in this country, and Donald J. Trump blew the whistle on it. He said, well, you know what? If we're going to pay to develop these drugs, then America has to get most favored nation status with the drug companies. That means you can't treat other countries better than you treat us. Oh my gosh, this caused Big Pharma to go crazy. They spent tens of millions of dollars on commercials calling President Trump's administration's plan socialist and demanding that Congress step in and stop the executive orders that were going to lower drug prices. Oh, these were international price controls, said Big Pharma. Now, did President Trump allow that disagreement, that massive political spending against him during an election to impair the collaboration and cooperation with Operation Warp Speed? No. Quite literally, as Big Pharma were out there running ads against the president, he was making an enormous amount of resources available in terms of money, human talent, national agencies, everything we could bring to bear in Operation Warp Speed, we did. And you know what? It worked. And if we later find out that these drug companies knew that this was going to work before the election and they sat on that information until after the election, you'll know why. It's not that they don't like Donald Trump's tweets. It's not that they don't like his tax policy. It's that Big Pharma understands that Donald Trump can't be bought. You see, the reason Big Pharma was able to get away with this scheme of charging other countries low prices and our country high prices is because they use the VIG, they use that Delta, that profit margin, 
to go buy off politicians. And frankly, it's a shame how many politicians are bought off so cheaply that it worked. But you can't buy off Donald Trump. He blew the whistle. He simultaneously lowered drug prices for millions upon millions of Americans. And he ensured that the resources were available so that we could achieve the objective of Project Warp Speed and get not one, but two vaccines to the market for our people and for the world. Congratulations, Mr. President. And if there were any shenanigans with Big Pharma, we'll find them eventually. Election manipulation and voter tampering. Proven, possible, and with some of the same systems that were used in the United States. Antonio Mugisa is founder and CEO of Smartmatic, a multinational election system that we use in this country. And you're about to hear his audio admitting that in the Venezuelan elections, there were votes that were tampered with. Now, I don't want to hear from Democrats anymore that it's not possible because we saw the Dominion systems flip thousands of votes. And now we hear this founder and CEO of this elections software company saying that, in fact, there have been elections with tampering. You'll also hear Antonio talk about the need for real-time review and auditing. And actually, if you have those safeguards in place, you can stop the manipulation of votes. And so I think it's critically important for us to audit these systems to ensure that they're fair and accurate, to ensure that all Americans, that the whole world can have consequence in the tabulated results, but listen to this circumstance where they clearly couldn't. Based on the robustness of our system, we know without any doubt that the turnout of the recent election for a national constituent assembly was manipulated. It is important to highlight that similar manipulations are made in manual elections in many countries, but they go undetected because of a lack of electronic security and auditing safeguards. So what happened? Why can't we stand by the results of previous Venezuelan elections, but we cannot endorse the elections held last Sunday? Our automated election system is designed to make, to make it evident when results are manipulated. However, there must be people auditing the system and watching for that evidence. During the National Constituent Assembly elections, there were no auditors from the opposition parties, as they did not want to participate. An audit would allow any, everyone to know the exact participation. We estimate the difference between the actual participation and the one announced by the authorities is at least one million votes. It is important to point out that this would not have occurred if the auditors of all political parties have been present at every stage of the election. We get this story from Fox News's Sam Dorman. Ilhan Omar, famous squad member from Minnesota, has claimed that Trump rallies are akin to Klan rallies. This is just so sad. In an interview with the Washington Post's Jonathan Capehart, Ilhan Omar says that she doesn't personally take much offense to the president's criticisms of her, but that the rallies were like Klan rallies that he was holding all over the country. I could tell you from personal experience, the president's MAGA rallies are full of joy and love and patriotism 
an appreciation for the fact that we live in the greatest country in the world and we were expressing ourselves through politics to try to maintain America's place as that cherished, glowing city on the hill. Ilhan Omar is willing to say these very negative and derogatory things about her fellow Americans because, frankly, there are times when I don't think she thinks too much of this country. She thinks that America is an evil, intractably racist, doomed place, which is hard to understand because Ilhan herself, her family, they've benefited from the love and grace extended by America as they traveled here to start new lives. And by the way, I want immigrants to our country to be successful. I want everyone in our country to be successful. I think people should have to come here legally, as Ilhan and her family did under a refugee program, but it is concerning to many of our fellow Americans when our country extends our grace and our love and our hope for a better tomorrow to refugees who then come to America and compare like the rest of us to Klan members and say that we're participating in a Klan rally because we want to go sing YMCA and Macho Man and talk about the need for our country to get out of foreign wars and be more productive and create rising wages and summon the intellectual capability and the imagination of our best and brightest to defeat the coronavirus, all while we recognize that for America to succeed in the upcoming century, for us to win, the fight that matters isn't against one another. It's not against some despot in the Middle East. It's against China. And we do need to pull together and work together to ensure that we prevail in that endeavor because the future of the world quite literally depends on it. And we do nothing to advance that needed cooperation when we have politicians like Ilhan Omar comparing Trump supporters and America First patriots to Klansmen. It is uncalled for, it is factually false, and it's hurtful. And I hope Ilhan does better. Senator Chuck Schumer recently said that Joe Biden, if sworn in as president, would be able to eliminate the first $50,000 in student debt with the stroke of a pen, with an executive order, without the need of legislation. Now, I don't quite know what Senator Schumer's perception is of separation of powers and how that would be able to occur, because it, it quite literally would be an appropriation of the Congress. But be that as it may, would Joe Biden even want to eliminate this student debt? I'm going to flash back to a moment in the House Judiciary Committee recently where we were debating legislation that would have allowed students to discharge their debt through bankruptcy. And it surprised many when I was the only Republican that joined Democrats to say that absolutely we ought to just hit the reset button on the higher education industrial complex, allow students who qualify, who might have been the victims of fraud of some of these colleges that sell students a bill of goods, we ought to be able to allow them to declare bankruptcy. But you know who the villain was that passed the legislation that helped the creditors and the credit card companies screw students? That's right. It was Senator Joe Biden. I make the case in Judiciary Committee, and you'll even hear Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler say, I'm right. Joe Biden was wrong. And I wonder if he'd even take action. Take a listen. Last but most certainly not least, my, my favorite writing on Joe Biden's role in this uh, is a Harvard Law School piece by Elizabeth Warren entitled, 
What is a women's issue, bankruptcy, commercial law, and other gender neutral topics? Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter that into the record. And, and in this piece, I, I think particularly noteworthy is where Senator Warren says, missing, for example, is a picture of Senator Biden standing shoulder in shoulder with the CEOs of the credit industry co-sponsoring legislation to increase restrictions on consumer and small business bankruptcy. It appears as though Joe Biden was the student loan indebtedness senator. And I'm grateful that the majority on this committee wants to break away from the Biden record on student loans and would instead chart a way forward that is more fair to America's young people. I yield to the chairman. I thank the gentleman for yielding. I, uh, the gentleman is quite correct. Um, at the time, uh, which was what, uh, 19, uh, 2005, uh, there was an attempt to do exactly what was done. It was the wrong thing to do. Uh, Senator Biden was on the wrong side. Many people in both parties were on the wrong side. Joe Biden, no friend of students suffering from student debt. I doubt he would ever be in a position to handle it with the stroke of a pen, as Senator Schumer suggests. He seems to be too busy bending over backwards for the creditors. What a shame. I am a big believer in apprenticeships and career and technical education. I think too often in America, our education system spends so much time trying to infuse skills into young people that are less relevant in today's economy. What we really ought to do as policymakers is lash the needs in the economy to the pedagogy that we're providing our students. So if they can learn coding, if they can pick up industry certifications, if they can get a clean safe certification so that right out of high school, they could be insured to be a manager or a, some other leadership position in the hospitality industry, all the better for young people. Construction technology, another big area where industry certification really gives people careers. The question is whether or not the United States federal government is in the best position to set standards for apprenticeships. This week in the United States Congress, we'll take a vote on the National Apprenticeship Act, sponsored by Congressman Bobby Scott, and it may surprise you that there is not a single Republican co-sponsor of this legislation. Now, our team is still looking through it, and I haven't decided how I'm going to vote on that bill on Friday, but I thought it would be helpful to share with our listeners some of the equities that are at play. First, during coronavirus, there has been a tragic negative impact on the development of young people. I see it just in our congressional office, the inability to have interns there that are scheming and strategizing and helping build ways to be of better service to our district and our constituents. We're not able to have that same level of engagement sometimes from entry-level positions through a Zoom call that we might have through a conference meeting or people coming in and out of the office sharing their ideas on proposed legislation. And so it does seem to be an appropriate national goal to try to help people that through no fault of their own, just through the circumstances of the date of their birth, have found themselves caught in this coronavirus pinch in the talent development pool. At the same time, I am concerned about nationalizing the apprenticeship system because I fear that it may squelch some of the innovation that's occurring at the state level. I'm particularly proud of what we do in the state of Florida. Matter of fact, when my father was the state Senate president, he really designed in the state of Florida our system of ensuring that we had 
highly relevant skills being taught to our young people. And what we found is that it really helped us with populations that might otherwise be very susceptible to dropouts. But the hardest thing to do in career technical education is something called articulation, where you take the skills and the learning and you convert that to the credits, the articulated achievement that would justify an a diploma or a certification or some recognition and valuation of that work that can be recognized and applied by others. And so if we take this system where 50 states are trying different things and tinkering and coming up with the best solutions for their students, and we wrap up the whole deal in Washington, D.C. and nationalize it, sure, there may be more resources available because, you know, the federal government prints money and this bill prints about an additional $3.1 billion, but it also could change the way that our states are developing strategies that might be unique to their conditions. I would suggest that in the state of Florida, hospitality is probably more relevant of an industry with our tourism base than it might be in Idaho. And in Idaho, agriculture might be a little more relevant than it would be in Connecticut or New Jersey. And so my hope is that we've got great resources, that we've got a focus on people that are caught in this talent development pinch, but that we use the federal government not as an overlord or as uh, a full-on synthesizer of all of the curriculum and all of the articulation, but more as an encourager. And that's what we're looking at in this bill. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can always leave them in the comments section on the podcast listening platform of your choice, or you can go to our website and submit an idea on the apprenticeship legislation at gates.house.gov. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll let you know how we're voting on Friday. Felicia and Ralph have had a baby. Bambino. Felicia and Ralph are African lions who live at the Santa Barbara Zoo. We get the story from NBC4 Los Angeles, and it gives me the opportunity to share what might be a bit of an unpopular hot take. I'm not a big zoo guy. I don't get the whole zoo thing. I love watching National Geographic. I love animals. I love seeing in their natural habitat. But for me, there's just something interminably sad about seeing some of the greatest animals in the world in very small habitats and cages. And I've heard the whole spiel about necessary breeding programs and animal rehabilitation. And while there are places where that's needed and necessary and helpful, it is not the racket. I mean, if you look at any business, the racket is where the revenue is, and the revenue is in admissions. And so the zoos aren't really there for the benefit of the animals, they're there for the benefit of the people. And if you're one of those people, no judgment. Go ju enjoy the zoo, have a great time, go and watch Bambino and Felicia and Ralph, but I won't be joining you. I wish the animals the best, I wish the people the best, but I think they're both at their best when they are in their freest state. Thanks for listening to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Make sure to subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating if you listen on iTunes. And join us tomorrow for more Hot Takes. Hot Takes.